what made me stand out as an advisor was I could put myself not only in the shoes of the ultimate buyer, you know, being a daily SPAC investor and making sure that we structure everything so that it works for a potential buyer and it's marketable. Your network is your net worth. Come listen to some of the most successful people I know. Share invaluable knowledge, stories, and advice in real estate, business, and beyond. This is Weiss Advice. Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to another episode of Weiss Advice. I am your host, Yona Weiss. Excited to be here today with Chelsea Mandel. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here too. Well, it's uh, great to have you. I will give a shout out to Aaron Zucker, uh, a mutual friend of ours who actually heard you first on his podcast. I was like, wow, that was such a fun episode. I got to have this girl on my show. And if you guys haven't checked out Aaron Zucker's podcast, we'll put a link to the show notes because that was a fascinating episode where he went into some details that you probably wish you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me to you. So anyways. <laughs> We're not going to go there. Don't worry. But no, I'd love to kind of get to know you and, and learn how you got started currently, just to kind of before anything else, the back, background to our listeners, Chelsea's the founder of Ascension Advisory, which is a sale leaseback advisory firm. We're going to talk about what that is. So if you don't know what sale leasebacks are, I guarantee you by the end of this episode, you will, because I'm very curious myself. So let's just jump into what your background is how you got into real estate and how you scaled to you know over 2 billion in closed deals. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks for the background there. And yeah, I mean, I started, you know, in the real estate investment universe. So I started at Starwood Capital Group. You know, traditional real estate private equity was buying a lot of underperforming malls and multifamily kind of value add. So it was more, you know, mainstream real estate. I was there for a couple of years, you know, right out of college, learned a ton, had a really strong analyst program and really got my feet wet, you know, in real estate just broadly. Coming from a liberal arts college, you know, we really didn't learn much about, you know, real estate or even just like finance kind of broadly. So it was a really good experience, you know, mostly for, again, that like foundational, you know, learning in real estate. After a couple of years there, a private equity firm in New York City was starting a new real estate strategy. So traditional private equity, not a real estate fund. They were launching a sale leaseback fund to really kind of blend the universe between real estate and credit. They had a portfolio manager who led, you know, a net lease sale leaseback fund at another firm called Angelo Gordon. And he was to start this new strategy at a private equity firm in New York. Again, that I mentioned New Mountain Capital. And so they were looking to make, you know, the first hire onto that fund to really grow the strategy. And I just thought it would be super exciting to start something new and be, you know, part of kind of the foundation of this new strategy for a pretty established, you know, mature private equity firm. And so I joined, you know, that fund. We raised about half a billion dollars in capital for a first time fund, you know, which was really impressive and super exciting, you know, especially to a, a pretty young, you know, green person in, in the industry. But yeah, we did also about, you know, four or $500 million in sale leaseback transactions while I was there. I was really building, you know, the framework of our models, our investment committee memos, our thesis and helping with fundraising. So it was a lot of, you know, really entrepreneurial, you know, projects that I was mm -hmm. really grateful to, to be involved with. Before we go, I want to just stop short and let's take a break and just understand what sale leasebacks are. If you could just explain it to me, like, 
Like I'm as green as you were when you started yeah. <laughs> because, you know, I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with real estate, familiar with real estate investing and in all different ways. But this is a concept that does not really, and I'm sure as you know, does not really get a lot of attention. Yeah, no, absolutely. And when I joined that fund, I had no idea what a sale back was. I kind of just thought, you know what, I'm going to learn something new and, and we'll figure it out together. But basically, you know, in kind of short overview, what it is, is we were working with business owners or private equity owners of businesses that were operational companies that were sitting on real estate assets through, you know, their actual company. So whether they were a manufacturing business and they owned a manufacturing facility or a distribution company who owns their warehouses, you know, the idea is that these are operating companies that own real estate that's mission critical to the operations, the core operations. And through a sale leaseback transaction, they could unlock capital that they have tied up in that real estate that sits on their balance sheet, get all the cash from that transaction, typically at a pretty accretive multiple from a valuation standpoint, and then reinvest those proceeds into some higher and better use, You know, something that has an ROI to it. So whether it's back into the core operations of the business or buying new equipment or paying down debt, you know, typically there's a higher and better use for their capital than sitting on the balance sheet. And so from, you know, the lease standpoint, that's like the sales side of it. The lease right. side of it, we enter them into a long-term lease so that the business and the operations continues to have that flexibility and that long-term control of the site that, again, is mission critical to what they're doing at the company. Gotcha. So if I were to just explain this, like, like I'm a, a 10-year-old or whatever, like I own a company, a manufacturing facility sitting on a huge property. I own the real estate. I'm going to sell the building to a third party. And then I'm going to lease that same building that I once owned as a long-term lease from that new buyer. So it's kind of a win-win where I'm still in the same place, still running the business, but I'm going to free up a lot of capital that was sitting in that real estate. And I'm still going to remain in that place. And the new buyer is going to have a property which with a long-term lease. So kind of a win-win. Exactly. We got to hire you for our business development team. Let's do it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Perfect. Awesome. So I understand it. Okay. So you were with this firm doing sale leasebacks with this new fund, new company. Fast forward, what happened there? You raised half a billion dollars and you were a young kid out of college, could be. And- yeah. No, I mean, honestly, it was great. It was a really great experience. I learned a ton. And, you know, buying sale leasebacks was really exciting. I think part of it was just that, you know, I realized I was good at, really good at sourcing opportunities too, which, from an investment perspective, a lot of the deals that you're doing come through brokers. So you don't really need to be great at sourcing off-market deals. But that's when the light bulb, you know, went off in my head. Like I'm really good at sourcing deals. Maybe, you know, the upside for me would be greater if I were in an advisory role where, you know, you obviously get compensated to, you know, go out and source deals and close deals. And, you know, it's an uncapped potential, right? Like at an investment fund, sure. you know, obviously you you get paid a salary and a bonus and everything is, you know, it was great, especially, you know, being so young, it was really great. But I just wanted something where there really wasn't a ceiling, like the harder you work and the more you hustle, the more money you make. And, yeah. you know, for me, brokerage was an interesting way to really see that kind of, you know, incentive model in true form. So I joined a brokerage firm. It was a fun firm out of Chicago. I opened up a New York office for that company. I was there about three years, you know, just structuring again the same sale leasebacks, but on the other side through, you know, working on behalf of the seller now as an advisor. And I closed about a billion dollars in sale leasebacks, you know, while there. And, you know, it was just 
a totally different angle of the same type of transaction, but seeing it from the seller's perspective and really being an advisor to the seller in how to structure the transaction, to marketing the transaction, to executing it, you really see more of the entire A to Z Mm. process as an advisor than I could ever see as an investor. And to me, that was really exciting. Well, so you really saw both ends of it as from the buyer side, the investor side, and also from the broker side, from the seller side. Yeah. And without jumping to the punchline, that led you to... Exactly. No. So that, you know, that really was, I think, what made me stand out as an advisor was I could put myself not only in the shoes of the ultimate buyer, you know, being a sales back investor and making sure that we structure everything so that it works for a potential buyer and it's marketable, et cetera, but also being in the shoes of a private equity firm, which a lot of my clients are. These are private equity owned businesses, you know, a lot of them, not all of them, but being able to understand it from what does a sponsor care about things like you know, assignment language, change of control, what does my exit, you know, flexibility and optionality look like that I think having all of that, you know, perspective and all those different angles to the same, you know, sales spec strategy, I think that's what, you know, really made me, I think, stand out in the space. And so, you know, after, you know, about three years at that prior firm, I decided to launch Ascension. And so that's your own company, Ascension, where you are the owner and you're still focusing on this same niche, which is the sale lease back strategy as an advisor? Yeah, exactly. So sale backs, corporate real estate advisory, you know, we're working with both business owners, so family and founder owned companies, as well as sponsors. So acquirers of businesses, whether it's private equity, search funds, you know, independent sponsors, etc. Awesome. And how big is your company at this point after launching it a little over a year ago? Yeah, so we've closed about, I think to date, about 600 or 700 million in sale backs. Awesome. And you have a whole team working for you also? (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So what does it take to become a a broker or an advisor for Ascension? I would say to become a broker or advisor, period. It's honestly, it's a very low bar. I mean, you know, anybody could go out. I definitely don't think you need a college degree. I don't know if you need a high school degree, but I think that's, you know, part of the value that we saw in starting, you know, this firm is that there's such a low bar to do it, but to be great at it, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's really, I think, a small, small percentage of the space because there's, you know, no barrier to entry. So from our standpoint, you know, we want people that not only like being a good salesman or a good salesperson is a fraction. It's a very small fraction of being good, you know, right. at this job in this industry. You need to be able to understand our clients, right? That's I think the hardest part where we've really nailed it. Again, we could put ourselves in their perspective. We could think the way they're thinking and worry about the things that they're worrying about, which a lot of advisors, they don't or they can't. And so they'll put their clients into situations where, you know, today, maybe they're getting them the best bang for their buck and the best deal. But Mm. in five years from now, they've limited their ability to exit or they juiced up the rents today to get them the highest proceeds. But now they're going to sell their company, the rents are above market and the next buyer is dinging their EBITDA. So being able to see the long-term vision by knowing what our clients care about and worry about, I think that's really what sets us apart. And the, those type of people who could see the long-term game versus like the short-term immediate future, those are the people that we're looking for. That makes a lot of sense. And you're absolutely right. I mean, sales in general and being a broker is is a very easy barrier to entry, but it's very difficult to become the top one. I, <laughs> yeah. mean, <laughs> I mean, as you know, right? It's not easy, but you've done that, right? You've taken starting out small and just growing. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I would say 
probably 80 to 90% of our business is recurring long-term, you know, repeat business with Mm. sponsors that are buying and selling companies all the time. So the worst thing we could do is do a great deal or do a deal that's great today. We get paid, everyone's happy. And then in two years from now, they come back and they say, I'm trying to sell my company and you tied me into this lease and now I need to get landlord consent and my landlord won't play ball. And we've seen deals where they've come to us from groups that have structured these poor leases and they're like, help me get out of this, help me cut a deal. We never want to be in that situation. So what's one of the, if you can share, if you can think of like one of the most creative or interesting deals that you've worked on? We've done so many interesting deals. I would say, I mean, tell me all in terms of, let me (laughs) give you some buckets, like buckets, really exciting deals we've done is I think the first bucket, especially for, you know, your listeners and the sponsor world is really these sale specs that we do that we call it the sale spec free roll that fund the entirety of these business acquisitions. So basically setting up the sale spec so that there's so much spread in the sale spec that that spread is actually used to acquire the company. So the sponsor is putting in no equity. And those, I think, have been like light bulb moments for a lot of the clients that we've worked on with these that they just couldn't understand how that could possibly make sense. And we've done it in the car wash space, in the auto dealership space, the gas station space. We've done it with industrial manufacturing facilities. So it's a very unique set of factors that make it possible. But when they are possible, it's like, you know, it's crazy. And and the outcomes have been phenomenal. Yeah. And I saw you you talk about this on on Twitter recently also, but I'm curious if you could break down what that actually looks like, you know, from, again, as simply as possible, like just so we can understand, like you're talking about free roll, you're talking about buying a business, buying the business and actually not having to put up any money to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So it basically, again, there's a lot of factors that have to make it make sense, but it basically comes down to the fact that the sale leaseback investor that we're bringing in is putting a much higher value, not just on the real estate, but on the real estate subject to a long-term lease than what the seller in the transaction is valuing their real estate at. And when that spread is so wide between the seller's pricing expectations on their real estate and the sale leaseback value, that that spread can actually cover the entirety of the acquisition of the opco transaction. That's when our client, again, doesn't have to put in any equity because the sale leaseback proceeds can entirely fund the real estate and the opco transaction. So you have to have a, a seller who's willing that, you know, is interested at least in, in selling their business as well, not just the real estate. Right? Yeah, yeah. This only works or this only is something that comes up when there's a business for sale and right. it includes real estate because right. the seller has to be selling the real estate and the business for us to use the sale leaseback. And then obviously the free roll concept applies to an acquisition. Right. Because I mean, traditionally, what you've talked about before is, you know, sale leaseback is where you're just trying to free up the real estate and continue operating the business. But here, this is like an amazing opportunity where you're buying a business with real estate. And like you said, that spread is such that the the buyer can buy the business without essentially any money <laughs> in it. Well, they're using the spread to fund right. their equity. Essentially. So yeah, I mean, I talk about it all over Twitter because the SMB universe, like these are, you know, acquirers, they're just buying businesses and they're smaller, typically, you know, size deal points. And so it makes a lot of sense where the real estate is, you know, even a couple million bucks and the seller thinks it's worth $800,000 and we can, you know, leverage the strategy to really make that make sense. So we've had a lot of success there. And I know that that's something that, you know, at least the SMB universe on Twitter is very excited about. Totally. I mean, what would be better than having buying a business, having it pay for itself? Right? I mean, 
that's like the ultimate goal. But you're saying obviously it's not that common, it's something that you've dealt with, but it's something that there have to be a lot of factors at play. What are yeah. some kind of like the telltale signs that this is something when you you see a deal like this? Like what are some of the telltale signs you know, oh, here is something that we can actually do? When the seller, the underlying seller who's selling the business wants one clean transaction where they want you to take the real estate, the business, and they don't care like how you're financing it. They just want to be, you know, they just want to be done. That's the best kind because they don't care how we're allocating real estate versus opco. They just want one number for everything. If we can create some spread in there by, you know, finessing the sale lease back value into the cap sack, they don't care. They don't ask questions. So for the deals that we've done where it's been this free world transaction, either the seller like wants, you know, the buyer to take everything and they just don't ask questions, or they're actually forcing the buyer to take mm-hmm. the real estate. And then the real, you know, the investor is saying, well, if you want me to, you know, take the real estate, then this is how I'm going to finance it. That's fascinating. And there are a lot of situations like that. A lot of retirees, you know, they want right. to get out of the business. You know, they just want to clean their hands of everything. They don't want to hold on to the real estate. And, you know, we've done a lot of those transactions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, without trying to figure out how to do what you do, <laughs> I don't, I'm not trying to do that, but all my secrets. Yeah, no, get all the secrets out there. But no, seriously, like, where do you find these deals? Like, how does one find, how does one go about finding a sale, you know, a sale leaseback type transaction deal? Yeah, I mean, they're different, like... I mean, you just come to you. You have a, probably listings of all these kind of things, right? Right. So like a lot of the time, the acquirers, like if you're a sponsor or, you know, an independent sponsor or search fund, private equity, they come to us when they're evaluating opportunities. And so typically mm-hmm. they'll just come to us and say, hey, we're looking at this deal. It includes, you know, a bunch of real estate locations. Is a sale back possible here? It's not like we're really going out and trying to identify like business acquisitions that include real estate and then bring it to a sponsor. Oh, interesting. So you don't have yeah. like listings per se, like a traditional brokerage? Oh, no, no. We do have listings when we represent the seller. So I'm just talking about like on gotcha. the, when we're just working with a business owner that already owns a real estate. Yeah. We just, you know, we market it. We obviously we list it, but we really have an investor network that we go to for these. We're not just like throwing it up on Crexy and CoStar and like seeing who bites. Yeah, no, it's, it sounds like a much more sophisticated area of real estate, meaning you're dealing with much more sophisticated buyers and private equity funds than just, you know, your typical mom and pop or, you know, individual or syndicator or whatever, what have you. Yeah, it's definitely more of a niche space because most groups can either, you know, buy deals or lease deals, but a sale leaseback is really a combination of both. So from the investor standpoint, like the the real estate investor, they have to be well-versed in the actual sale leaseback transaction. We've dealt with groups who, you know, are multifamily owners traditionally trying to get into the space and their leases don't really apply because it's an absolute triple net lease. They're talking about property management and, you know, it really works best with groups who know what they're doing in the sale spec space. But look, 1031s, a lot of the time they'll overpay for, you know, for deals that we're selling. And, you know, if our clients on board, we're happy to take the risk that they're going to be, you know, slightly challenging to work with, but they're going to overpay. And so maybe it's worth it. Absolutely. And it doesn't, it's really sounds like impossible to do this type of thing with a multifamily because you're just dealing, I mean, this sounds like it's done more with, you know, obviously there's a business underlying business involved, but more like a net lease type transaction. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I meant like groups who had been traditionally like multifamily. Oh, I see what you're saying. They had been. They're not trying to like sell their their multifamily building. (laughs) Yeah. In terms of asset class, it's really, you know, industrial, retail, healthcare, medical, specialized assets. What it comes down to is that the building is single tenant in nature, freestanding, and that there's some argument to be made that this property is mission critical to the operations. 
Gotcha. Okay. Makes a lot more sense now. I'm not trying to like sell you my multifamily uh, building <laughs> and get the tenants to pay for the... Uh, to pay their individual, like form a, a joint union of lessees. Yeah, I could see that. Maybe no, I don't know. But that's pretty cool. And is this focused solely in the United States, or does your does your team like deal with? Because I mean, uh, this could be done anywhere, right? I mean, their business. Yeah, no, operate today. Yeah, all over the U.S., Canada, Mexico, and UK, Europe. Oh wow! So we have local partners in yeah in the UK and in Europe that help us with like the boots on the ground translating stuff, you know, we do it through compliance, obviously purposes as well. But yeah, we're doing deals really all over the place. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, if it's in London, you have to translate that for sure. I can't understand <laughs> half, half the things people say over there. Uh, <laughs> you get really good at understanding accents because also like Europeans are much more on video. Like they don't dial in, they want to see faces, which I really like because I'm on video all the time. So it really helps because a lot of the accents, you know, I'm from Long Island. I have an accent too. They're probably like, what the heck is she saying? But you get really good at that. So we have a lot of clients from all over the place. It, it does result in a lot of very early morning phone calls. So I'm typically on calls starting at like 7 a.m. But we really enjoy the deals that we're working on in Europe too. That's awesome. Does that give you a chance to travel at all to yeah, see any of these yeah. deals? So I'm going to be spending a month in or a month and a half starting in London in September, and then really just going all around Europe. But we do have an office in London. We're about to announce like our person who's going to be kind of more, you know, stationed there. But right now it's been the same team covering and yeah, it's a lot of travel. Very cool. That's amazing. Well, good for you. Congratulations on such the expansion. That's awesome. Thank you. From starting a business a little little over a year ago to being multinational. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, we definitely hit the ground running. I mean, the thing is when we started, we have, you know, a lot of the clients, the international stuff really started with a lot of the clients that we have in the US, private equity firms were buying businesses that had either global footprints, you know, in Europe or Mm -hmm. in Canada, in Mexico, or the same sponsors have offices in those regions. And then we've kind of just made those connections to their other, you know, offices outside of the US. But when you work with, you know, we have a really established set of partners in terms of law firms we work with, diligence providers. So we've set ourselves up so that we have all the professionals in terms of the additional resources that our clients need in those regions. And we're, you know, there's some local nuance, there's local jurisdiction with, you know, bankruptcy law and lease agreements that you have to abide by. But we yeah. lean on, you know, the, the legal advisors for anything like that. But we have a general sense of how it works in, in the countries that we're active in. Very cool. And really, the my, my curiosity you know, begs me, but is it something that you personally have gotten into in terms on the investor side, seeing how so many of your clients have been successful in buying, you know, these sale leasebacks or properties? And is it something that you've transitioned into as well, personally, or is that not in your horizon? Not to say it's not in the horizon. It's not something I've gotten into personally, mostly because, you know, ev- everyone who knows me personally knows it's like my clients are everything to me. I would never do anything where there's even like a question about conflict or anything like that. Mm, right. So like we wouldn't want to be in a situation where, you know, we can't feel a hundred percent confident that like we only have the client's best interest in mind. So I haven't for that reason. I also like, you know, again. I like the sell side of what I do better than when I was investing in these sales back deals. So I think if anything, I'd rather invest into like the private equity funds of my clients to benefit from the sales backs that, you know, the value that we're bringing to them versus being the buyer on the other side. That makes sense. And you can probably see a lot of benefit from investing, you know, kind of more passively in some of these deals. And it gives, 
probably them more confidence in the deal itself if they see you uh, you showing interest. Doubling down and yeah, I want to invest in your fund and then we're doing these sales specs across their fund. That would definitely be something that I would be interested in. Well, there you go. Awesome. Well, wish you luck in that. That sounds like a great idea for expansion. Yeah. Great way to build wealth also over time in the equity. Yeah, it's definitely something that we've thought about. I mean, we have a couple initiatives that we're working on, you know, right now in the immediate kind of, you know, I would say like next 12 months. But I think the investment side is something that naturally is just going to be a synergy, you know, at some point that comes around. For sure. For sure. Awesome. Well, Chelsea, this has been amazing. I've learned a ton about sale leasebacks more than I think I would have had I just listen to a different podcast of you speaking about it because I'm asking the questions, but I'd love to transition to what we call now the final four. These are four questions for for you. First question is, what's the worst job that you ever had? I've been really blessed to have really good jobs. I would say the worst job I ever had, I was a bus counselor at a summer camp on Long Island. I actually got fired. So maybe I only call it the worst because I secretly hold a grudge, but I was a bus counselor for I think they were between like four years old and 10 years old. And it was just like, it was like working at a zoo. I'm sorry to say, but it was just like chaos for like hours. And you're, you know, at the end of your day, at the end of the day of summer camp, you're on the bus for like, I don't know, it probably was like two hours of just like getting kids to their homes. And I got fired because I left a child unattended, a six-year-old. He was very compelling. He convinced me that it was okay to leave him home alone because he knew how to use the alarm system. So, you know, I was young. I was in high school. So I did. I left him there. And then the next day I got called in like, did you leave, you know, Ben or whatever unaccompanied? I was like, yeah, but he told me he was fine. (laughs) Like he said everything was cool and his parents were cool with it. They were like, you trusted a six-year-old. So I got fired from that. But that was probably the worst job I've ever had. Yeah. Yeah. Being a camp counselor is just is extremely challenging. I did that for a couple of summers also. Yeah. Probably up there with the list of the worst and the best at the same time. It is rewarding. <laughs> fun. Like during the day, the sports, the activities are fun. The bus counselor was a specific designation right. like for money, but it was not worth it. No. Definitely. Yeah, I hear that. Second question. What's a book you've read that's given you a paradigm shift? I will say something that people will hate me for, but I am really not a big or at all book reader. I think the last book that I read like front to back was Catcher in the Rye in seventh grade. So I would not be the best resource. I'm definitely more of a listener. So like podcasts and television and movies, but I am not a big reader. Don't take my advice on this. Okay. So I'm actually going to change the question a little bit because you know, I can, I'm the host of the show. So <laughs> you can, I can do whatever I want. So I'm going to give you what's some advice that you've been given that was a paradigm shift for you, like something that really just changed the trajectory, changed the way you thought about the world or what you do. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, honestly, one of the most like vivid memories of like being inspired was my math teacher in high school. I think his name was Mr. Sherwood. Yeah, his name was definitely Mr. Sherwood. He just like sat me down one day and like I was a goofball in high school. Like I was getting in trouble all the time. I had great grades and I, you know, I had the right like long-term goal. I knew I needed to go to a great college and be successful, but I was just always getting in trouble. And he sat me down one day after math class. I think it was like pre-calc or something. And he was just like, you are smart and you are going to be successful and you need to get your shit together and like stop fucking around. Basically, I was like, okay, Mr. Sherwood, like, thank you for that. I was getting detentions all the time. I was hanging out with the wrong crowd. Like it was just, to me, that was like 
it clicked in my head, like, all right, I need to focus on getting into college. I need to focus on the right things and stop caring about all the bullshit of, you know, Rosslyn High School. And yeah, I think that changed like how I then looked at the next couple of years of my trajectory. I mean, it wasn't, you know, career professional, but I think sure. that was one of the most vivid moments that I really felt like inspired. That's awesome. And it's so true that oftentimes it's just someone who cares enough to make a difference and, and tell you what you need to hear. Yeah. And, and at that, the right time, like right. when you need to hear it. Yeah. Because a lot of kids might just blow that off and be like, you know, screw you. Like, I'm going to yeah, keep having fun. <laughs> like, yeah. like, what do you care? You know, but clearly he did care. And so that's awesome. Uh, I'm glad to hear it worked out. Yeah. Third question is what's a skill or talent that you would like to learn? Skill or talent? This is silly, but I've always wanted a skateboard. Like at some point I knew how to skateboard and I was like a skater girl in like seventh and eighth grade. And then when I'm like around like the suburbs, like home on Long Island and I see people skateboarding, I just like wish I could be able to like pick up a skateboard and go like do a wheelie or whatever they call it. It just seems like it would be a fun way to to get around. So yeah, maybe one day I'll learn to skateboard again. Very interesting. Okay. That's definitely not one we've had. We've had it mentioned ever on the show. You didn't <laughs> you know, say it had to be professional. It doesn't. No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, sports or something like that is actually fairly common. Just specifically skateboarding is not one that we've had. We did have Mikey Taylor on the show, who was the you know number one most successful professional skateboarder of all time, oh, who, wow. who now is actually a, a private equity and real estate investor. Naturally, right? <laughs> right, exactly. But yeah, no, I don't know. I'll have to make that. that intro. Some free lessons. Right. Yeah, I don't think he does anymore, but he could probably point you in the right direction. Fourth and final question, Chelsea, what does success mean to you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I've definitely fine-tuned this in my head. I think the last couple of years, you know, since I thought about launching Ascension and then once we finally did, I think for me, success would be like having a legacy, like something that, you know, I work my whole life building, and then it continues, you know, beyond me. So having something that I could pass down to my kids that has, you know, my name associated with it. And just knowing that like, that was something that I built and I created and that kind of endures. That's, I think what, you know, would make me feel like I've achieved success. Love it. That's amazing. And that's so true that for a lot of people, that's really what it's all about. But it takes time to really kind of figure that out. What does that mean for you individually? What is that legacy that you want to leave. But once you do have that honed down, it'll be much easier to kind of focus on that more. Yeah. And then everything is driven by that. Love it. Chelsea's really been awesome. Love, loved having you on the show. And I said earlier, you should do more podcasts. And now I'm convinced you should do more podcasts because yeah. <laughs> you're, glad I told you. <laughs> you're a good salesman. What can I say? You're good at sales. Thank you. Awesome. Well, where can our listeners find you or reach out to you if they want to? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter. So Chelsea and Mandel email, you know, you can put my email here and our company website, ascensionadvisory.com. I'm very accessible. So feel free to reach out and let's connect. Awesome. I'd love to do that. We'll make sure to put that all in the show notes and really been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you again for taking the time out today. No, thank you so much. It's been great. And to our listeners, thank you guys for listening all the way to the end. Once again, remember the best advice comes only when you ask. Real quick, I have one question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I wanna ask you a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message to the whole world is that if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this podcast is out on is that you like my stuff and I'm doing something right. So take a few seconds out of your day, hit that subscribe button, 
leave a rating review, I would be extremely grateful. Also, I want to hear from you guys. So I want to hear some feedback. If you have any questions for future episodes, please find me on LinkedIn, send me a DM, a connection request, Yona Weiss, and I'd love to hear from you.